to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. So I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by J.D. Dillon. Um, his formal title is Principal Learning Strategist at Exonify, but to his friends and family, he is Learning and Performance Geek. And to any of those that pay enough attention to social media and like to seek out some really good blogs on learning, I'm sure you've come across J.D. already. So thank you so much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Um, now, JD, you are quite the publisher. So, um, I know anybody that's paying, like I said, enough attention to the streams out there, you'll see that you are certainly working out loud, as Jane Bozarth would put it, and, um, sharing of your experience, both obviously very recent corporate experience and now moving into the strategist role as well. Um, but one of the things I wanted to concentrate on with you today is I know that you are a real advocate of looking at learning as part of the workflow and knowledge flow. And I was reading one of your recent blog posts, um, basically arguing that lots of organisations have quite a hierarchical approach to the knowledge flow. So they make assumptions about what people need to know from the whole body of knowledge within an organisation, and they deliver that. And often they're missing some of the most important lessons, the nuances, the context, and all that, all the, that good stuff. So what I wanted to ask you is for you then, if we're trying to help people navigate all the knowledge that we have in a knowledge-rich world, what's the difference for you between curation and spoon-feeding? Sure. I, the, the issue that you refer to, I often call the, the challenge of perceived importance with regards to how organizations treat the, the knowledge needs of their people. Um, so when it, when it comes to that balance between curation and spoon feeding, the question is often, well, how do we help people know what they need to know in order to execute their jobs? And the way I look at it is, if you hold people accountable and give them clear goals and a clear vision as to how they're contributing to the organization, you don't really have to spoon feed anymore. Um, and I know that having been, you know, with my background, I was frontline employee in a very large organization. I was operational management, and then I shifted into learning and development. And the one thing I can tell you is I never sat, I've never sat around a large organization and said, oh my gosh, I've got too much information. I don't know where to go next. It's always been the opposite problem of I have a unique need and no one is attempting to fill that for whatever reason. And as I shifted into you know, the support role that we term learning and development, it became very clear that that was largely based on an ownership mentality that is pervasive throughout multiple level, levels of traditional hierarchies within organizations, regardless of the size. So it's not just a big company problem. I think it's a it's a way that organizations handle and you know perceive information. And not only is it, you know, are there primary owners, because my role as, you know, as, as an example, corporate communications is I push information. Um, you also then have challenges as information tends to get pushed through. And I've witnessed a variety of different change initiatives and learning activities and, and various things where the message was great at the top of the organization, executive buy-in, they started pushing the information down, and somewhere in middle management, things fell apart. And you started to see emails being forwarded around that said things like, forward to your team if you decide, or if you so please, yes. uh, and things like that. And I'm sitting in the background wondering, how, how can any individual member of an organization know what everyone else potentially needs in order to do their job? And I don't believe they can. I think they can help 
direct people to better resources and hold them accountable to types of performance. But ultimately, for me, it's up to each individual employee knowing what they're doing and knowing what resources they need to do their job in order to pull the right information. So what makes a great curator in your view then, JD? I think you really have to have, you know, ear to the ground, pulse of the organization type of a move. And I think that's in a lot of cases why support teams are not the best people to execute on that role, at least in their current definition. Because if you look around, and I often give people this test when I say, what information is of most value in an organization, especially if you work in an office environment, call center, or anything like that, and you walk around and you look at people's cubicles, and you look at what's attached to the walls of the cubicles, and more often than not, it's not the fancy marketing materials or the L&D job aids and things like that. It's the ugly PowerPoint slide that their peer made that they find super handy actually within the context of the work. And that's what they're referring to all the time. And we, more often than not as organizations, look poorly upon that and sometimes refer to it as contraband and try to eliminate it because it's not approved and all these different things, as opposed to taking that as a lesson and saying, the valuable information, and not just the information itself, but how to package it and how to share it, is in the workflow with the people doing the job. So for me, it's about, even as a support partner in a learning and development type role, a corporate communications role, finding the people inside the organization that are the builders, that are the sharers, and providing them with simple opportunities to activate those behaviors and that sensibility and awareness of the job and help them scale their capabilities. Because one, they can handle a lot more information than any individual support team can. And two, they understand how it's being used every day and can flex with the needs of the customer and the needs of teams faster than a team that's you know several steps removed from the actual work being done with customers every day. What I really like is that real focus on the people and the profile of the type of person and where they're putting themselves in the business, the types of questions that they're asking. I really like that because, you know, um, myself coming from a knowledge management background, and there's always a temptation for organisations to go for the tech first, to organise all this information and all this stuff before thinking about, actually, just as you, you've, you've said, JD, it, quite often it's not that we don't have enough information, but even so, even though we may have quite a lot of information there, it being organized and accessible in a way that makes sense is also a big challenge. And often that's had technology thrown at it, but it needs sense making, as you've described. It needs the understanding of what that looks like in the workflow and how people are going to use it and in what context. And then we can help signpost them to things that will be really important to them. Exactly. And I think that's where a, a, a structured approach to curation comes in from a support mechanism on top of, you know, what would better be termed user-generated content from there. Because people don't inherently have a way to structure information inside organizations. And then most people, whether regardless of technology, tend to take a folder hierarchy approach to the way that they, they store things without really thinking about how you use information every day in your life. And the fact that the internet does not have a defined folder structure. In Wikipedia, you never figure out where your page is located within a greater hierarchy of information. You can just find it because you're hunting for topical information driven by a search-based experience and then interlinking between pages because the, the system is built to do that. So for me, it's, it's as a central 
curation function, you can step in strategically and help gather all of this content that's being generated by users and, and kind of lean them in the correct direction and guide the way using right fit technology that's going to you know, focus on contributor capability in addition to that curation function and help people, you know, help guide the right experience overall for all users. Because naturally people start to slide into what works for their team or their specific role, not realizing that their role is very similar in terms of how information is being used to a role that's radically different or a very different part of the organization. And no one is sitting in the middle of that saying, I can create a better overall user experience. And at the same time, listen to what people are doing, watch what people are using, and shift that experience as necessary. Again, as long as you pick the right technology that values user contribution over workflow and structure and all these things tend to get in our way of you know, flexibly leveraging information. Well, you're absolutely right there, because I certainly didn't want to um, suggest for a moment that, oh, this is only a people issue, it's not Mm -hmm. a tech issue, because in fact, that was going to be one of my next questions, was what have you seen out there that has served well as good supporting technology to facilitate that kind of um, organic, on-demand, intuitive um, searching of good content? Sure. I always lean towards tools that have a level of familiarity to the experience based on what you're doing every day. So people people know the search experience, for lack of a better term, Google. Um, people know what Wikipedia is. They have a familiarity with social type technology. So how do you find tools that lean in that direction where they can hunt for content via search topically, drill down for information via interlinked articles and this type of you know, related content and video playlists and things like that, um, and get as close to their everyday experience with information as opposed to what a lot of enterprise technology has historically been because it was built for a different model in a different way in a different time. And it just hasn't, you know, it's iterated over time and improved slightly. And there are certain tools that I'm kind of referring to. Um, <laughs> but they've never jumped to where consumer technology and the internet itself has gone in terms of how people leverage information. Because nowadays, information is a social experience. And it's not just about adding a comment box onto an article page. It's, it's about enabling people to easily share and connect information with one another. So technology that gets closer to that, in my experience, I've used a lot of wiki-type technology to get there. Um, and it doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. I love to quote the people that I, I you know, once built a gigantic knowledge repository that cost me $2.34 per user per year. And as it comes for enterprise technology, that's almost free. Uh, especially when you're working for a very large company. Definitely. Um, so, and, and it, it wasn't about the, t- it wasn't the greatest tool in the world. It was a great tool because we picked it based on its familiar behavior set. Um, you know, it looked like things people had seen before and it was flexible enough for allow- to allow us to get it closer. But at the same time, we just had a low bar of entry for both administrators and end users. And it was built to enable people to contribute what they knew. And because that was where we started, we had great success with it. We're able to shape the overall experience behind the scenes as people continue to contribute knowledge and it organically grew and, and shifted itself over time to what the organization really needed. Well, JD, this reminds me of a question that I used to get asked a lot when um, a lot of my work was focused on knowledge communities. And in workshops that I used to run and, you know, supporting consultancy and things, people used to ask me, yeah, but are they going to share the wrong stuff? Are they going to say the wrong thing? And I used to have lots of comebacks on that, but I'd love to get your view on that, JD, from the things you've been saying there. How do you 
answer the question of, but what if they tag it wrong or they're uploading the wrong type of stuff? Sure. There's two directions I go with that. So from a, are they going to say something bad or do something quote unquote wrong? Uh, it's, a, it's a question of accountability. If you post their name and their photo next to it, they're not going to do anything stupid. Because who are you hiring if you're worried about that problem? So, <laughs> exactly. And having, you know, working for a very large uh, global organization with a very large knowledge repository that anyone could say anything in at any time, in four years, we never used the escalation procedure, which was call me. Um, so, you know, I, practically, I've never seen it. And again, if something happens, you have to worry about that person in other cases because if they're going to say something silly internally, what's happening externally with this person? That relates to my second point, which is if they're sharing the wrong information or something that's incorrect, they're already doing it because they have email <laughs> and they can talk to one another in the break room and all of these different back channels of communication that the organization never sees and management never sees. So would you rather have that going on, which it already is in every company on earth, or would you put, rather put that in a you know, internally public view where not only can management see it and subject matter experts can see it, but everyone else in the community can see it. So in my case, I often refer to the fact, would you rather have you know, one team set of eyes on information to make sure something is accurate, so 15 people maybe, or would you rather have 10,000 people capable of seeing a piece of information and then as a community directing it, or as a group, depending on how you look at it, push it the right direction, flag it as incorrect, or you know, add the necessary information to make it more useful. So the, the power is in the community. And I look at the, you know, again, the internet and how you use it every day as a normal person. And I say, if you have a health problem and you go on Google and you search for a resolution to that problem, you get two results, one of which is the Mayo Clinic and one is a place called Bob's Health Shack which one are you going to use? <laughs> that same decision-making capability can happen in enterprises if you treat people with the, you know, the same level of respect and trust and accountability and let them figure out where the trust factor is or where the reputation is. And again, use technology that maybe helps with this, how search results are returned, are people able to comment and rate information and leverage that level of confidence and you know provide them the, the level of reputation around who's contributing, and then let them make the decisions based on what they know they're being held accountable for for their job. Because people are not going to just willy-nilly use information when they know they're being held accountable to some type of an outcome. Well, as well as now going and Googling Bob's Health Shack, which everybody yeah. definitely will I've never will done now. that. Well, I, de I should do that one day. Now. Um, I want everybody to go back to that last section, listen to what JD said, and rehearse it. Because <laughs> I couldn't agree more across all the global communities that we used to have at Orange, which became France Telecom. I thoroughly back what JD said. I was never once called about any issue of inappropriate use of discussion boards, of sharing irrelevant content. It never ever happened but it comes up so often as an objection that's why I wanted to raise it here today because I think it's really important because I'm sure there are lots of people calling uh listening in today I should say they're thinking well yeah but you know I, I we have all these objections about whether or not they'll tow the company line whether this will be on message and I remember years ago going to a workshop on the unwritten rules and it stuck with me because exactly as you said JD if you think it's not happening well then you're pretty naive <laughs> exactly so that's fantastic. Well, and on that note, what I'd really like to do to wrap up the conversation today is we've touched 
in this conversation on lots of things that are really at the heart of some of the challenges that learning development have today. And some of that is driving some transformation and changes in lots of learning development um, departments across the world. And I know that you're talking ATD this year in May. Session is entitled Escape Extinction, Four Ideas for Restoring Relevance to L&D. Can you tell me a bit about why you think this session is so important right now? Sure. There, there, there's a lot of conversation going on in terms of the need for L&D to evolve in a meaningful way as part of an organization. And the data is, is pretty firm in showing that we're not delivering great value overall. Yeah, various data points out there. I love one recently um, from an organization that came out with an NPS score based on some survey data. And if internal um, users were to rate the value of their L&D resources, they give us a negative 31 NPS, which from my perspective makes us a bad cable company, which is, it, just, it cannot be a good feeling. And I know having been corporate learning, you often are challenged in terms of understanding the value that you have. And there, you know, to put the simplest way to look at it is, who often gets scared when layoffs happen? You know, the support teams and learning organizations wonder, are they going to be the first to go? And I, I like to ask people the hard question and say, if you and your entire learning organization will let go tomorrow, would the front line employees notice? Oh, JD, I was speaking to somebody, a large security uh, company in the UK about 12 months ago, about around this time, 12 months ago. And they had said exactly that when they left that organization, the learning development team were not replaced. And 12 months later, nobody noticed. <laughs> exactly. And that should be a, and just as a professional, that should be a scary proposition, yet alone as, a, as a, a, an organization is trying to deliver value as part of a larger entity. You should not be okay even questioning that, that um, concept. So, so for me, it's. I think it's. A, I put a little bit of a, a darker spin on the conversation when I when I start to use the word extinction. But I think it's for us to be relevant as learning and performance professionals today. We need to change the way we look at everything that we do. So I don't think by any means we need to throw out the playbook, get rid of everything we've been doing, forego all instructor led training for videos or any of these things that I think some people are throwing around. Um, but for me, it's about. Stopping the references we make to organiza- you know, to the organizational partners we work with every day as clients, or we like to say that the business, we, we make this third, you know, third person reference to this, the business entity is learning and development when we are and should look at ourselves as part of the overall business. So for me, it's about, you know, and this conversation at ATD um, is going to be about how do we get closer to the business and really integrate ourselves as part of the everyday. So by no means should employees be required to engage with some type of learning alternative necessarily every day, but we should be an opportunity, whether that be push resources or pull resources. And we should be leveraging everything that we know about how people learn, the science of learning, which you know we know very little, but everything we do know, we should be taking advantage of. We should be leveraging how people lever- you know, use information and share and consume and their typical everyday behaviors as part of our work. And overall, we should be looking for ways that we can help in the context of need and be there. So when someone raises their hand and they have an opportunity or they have a problem, they need to solve it, we as learning and development or whatever we might want to call ourselves, should be enabling that solution, whether it be with a, with a piece of content, with a way that we've established a network, with some type of support mechanism, we need to be there. And then on build off of that every day so that some of the more structured offerings and the training events and all these different things can still take place. But really start with being part of the everyday for an organization, which is where I think we will 
display value to the overall company and especially the individual employees needs, which is unique. Well, JD, I can't thank you enough for today. I think it's such a good positioner for those that I think this year is a particular year for transformation for learning and development. There's some really practical advice that people can take there and start to think about how they're going to apply that to their their strategy and their approach to learning going forward. Um, JD, I know that this is just one conversation. You've got lots of great content on this subject. Where can people find you? Uh, sure, I am online at jddillon.com. Uh, you can also uh, check out my team at exonify.com. And if you're on Twitter, I'm at jd underscore Dylan. And if you're anywhere near a Twitter chat related to learning and performance, I'm you'll be there. Gonna, probably going to be there, as people are telling me. Absolutely. So. And I definitely check out JD's uh, blog, justcuriousblog.com, because you, you go through the archives and there's tons on here, really practical advice and good signposting to other resources and some other great thought leaders as well. So, JD, thank you so much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. Thank you. It was a great time. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers, and of course, your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.